This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So much of this identity nonsense that we see in culture wars on both sides, on both sides, absolutely. It's people who don't really have much else other than that, you know, other than their place in the culture wars. What's your identity? How do you identify? We see more and more these days, I identify as this. I'm a vegetarian. I'm a trans activist. I'm a football fan. This is the club that I like and this is who I am based on the identity. How much is that important to you and where does that come from and how do you create that? All these questions and more, David Swift will answer. David Swift, the writer of The Identity Myth. I welcome you, listener, to yet another episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold. And you know what's nice is when you interview someone who has what I'd call an academic background, as David does, and and find that they're actually a lot of fun, easy to have some back and forth with and to laugh with. And that's what I found today in the form of David Swift, writer of The Identity Myth, Why We Need to Embrace Our Differences to Beat Inequality. Now, what does all that mean? Well, David takes a really eye-opening look at the identities we create for ourselves, the stereotypes that we have about other people and about class, for example. You know, the people who are working class think this, this is how they vote. And he dispels many of those myths and also talks about, you know, identity changes, how your identity can change in different circumstances and environments. Many of you will know that feeling maybe, for example, just being the posh one from home only to find at university you're the not-so-posh show or the alternative bohemian person who then turns up somewhere where there are more alternative people and you're just the guy and you've lost your identity and where do you get your identity from? In reality, we are in some senses all the managers of our own public impressions. We all do it a little bit. We all try and forge a little bit of like a, almost like an Instagram page, but us as we walk around, you know, we're, we're at it all the time. Uh, forming others' opinions of who we are. Get the identity myth in all the normal places. There's a link in the show notes. We really get going in the bonus episode today that is played at the end uh, now of the full episode for those of you who signed up on Patreon or other member platforms. Thank you to my latest patrons, Louise R., Matt Cooper K., and Nick Foster. You guys are the engine of this thing. You guys help to run it. Thank you so much. You're very much appreciated. And now you're on the edge with David Swift. Thanks for joining me. How, how are you doing? Now, I'm putting on my, my voice that we're recording voice. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing pretty well, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, great to be here. Oh, you're very, very welcome. I want to start with... Um, uh, I've been reading your books, fantastic, and we'll talk all about that. Um, very clever words and stuff but i my brain kept up with it why do people let's start with a sort of controversial one why do people pretend to be working class sometimes yeah i think it's sort of credibility really isn't it so i think in certain contexts right you you want to have this added credibility so say back in the day uh, this former mp john denham said to me about how him and his mates when they were at southampton university in the 70s they'd always go down to the local labor party and they'd all be dressed up as scruffy as possible, you know, like worn jeans and stuff like that. And all the actual working class fellows who were members of the local Labour Party in the 70s would all be wearing suits and ties and the Sunday best and stuff, you know. So back then, it was in that particular context where they did, they felt they didn't have credibility as students and they wanted to maybe have some of that working class credibility. So that's why they might have. Nowadays, it's a bit different, right? Because obviously nowadays, people do this in all kinds of contexts, not just when they're down the local Labour Party. And I think something, you know, I don't want to blame everything on social media and stuff like that, but I think there's a large slice of blame here because it's so important now, I think, to sort of project a certain image of yourself, uh, whatever that be, you know, but like a complex, nuanced, uh, multifaceted image. 
And I think for a lot of, I think for, for some people who have an interesting backstory, they can say, oh, actually, you know, my great grandmother was from Malta or whatever, you know, and that can be their thing, you know, how the great grandmother uh, won the military cross or something. Uh, nothing of anyone particularly about it. So, but for people who don't, you know, people who don't have that kind of interesting uh, backstory, they can just say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, more working class than I actually am. So, yeah, I think the idea is that just being like boring old, you know, straight white uh, middle class man doesn't cut it anymore, doesn't cut it on the internet. So everyone's got to have something of a you know, more interesting backstory than that. Do you think there's also a suggestion of like, um, however well I've done in my life, if I started from uh, a lower position, it's, it's even better? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think absolutely everyone does this, doesn't you know, no matter no matter where they started from. I think there's the idea of this is because of my own triumph, you know, my, this is because of my own brilliance and my own hard graft, actually, yeah, and it's uh, it's not to do with just luck or, or happenstance. But, so, yeah, I think there's definitely an element of that, too. I've definitely felt that, and it actually took me a long time to sort of almost come to grips. This is my sob story about coming to grips with being middle class, uh, <laughs> because I, I always remember sort of saying to my dad when I was like, I must have been a teenager, and I was like, Dad, are we, are we posh? And he was like, well, you are. <laughs> And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's really weird that I'm a different thing to what my dad was. Um, because, obviously, you know, he came into some money and was able to send me to this posh school and stuff. Um, and I've spent, like, years playing it down. And I've, it's only getting into my 30s where I think, you know what, what is that? How stupid is that? I'm just going to – this is just what I am. But do, do you know what I mean? Is that thing? Because I, I guess I thought anything I did was like, well – you had a, you know, middle class upbringing. That's what it was, you know. Yeah, so I think there's two different things. There was, I think there's the sort of, there's like the sort of social economic material element, um, which is one thing, and then there's a sort of cultural element as well. You know, if that makes sense. So I think sometimes people, uh, I don't know, either they maybe do find it harder to accept that they, you know, maybe got a little bit of a lift up, and that's fine. Or people should just embrace that and come to terms with it. But then I think because there's also this sort of cultural cachet you know, with, with grafted and working your way up and or maybe just as I was saying before, having a more interesting backstory. I think that's what maybe puts people off a little bit. Um because definitely obviously this is a big thing, you know, say come from Liverpool, you know, and obviously not being the most working class scouts you'll ever see or hear. Um uh, even though it's not as though I, you know, uh did go to a like, you know, fee paying senior school or anything like that. I went to sort of I mean it was actually a fairly fancy state school. Um a lot of the uh, Brookside actors went there. <laughs> if you ever heard of Brookside, but you know, but no, it was a fairly sort of um, you know non-paying school in Liverpool. But still, because there's this overwhelming imperative to be as working class as possible, uh, yeah, it can be sort of tough to admit that you're not sometimes. One of my best old uh, friends is from Liverpool. His name's Zach Goodman. Do you know him? I don't think you know. I did. You know, hilarious. I met someone called Zach the other day, but I don't think it's this guy. No, because um, I'm just thinking how many Zachs are there in Liverpool. What that mean? I always remember Zach lived on this place called Men Love Avenue, as in Men Love Having You. And I thought that was a really funny street <laughs> name. Quite near to me, in fact. Quite So, yeah, John Lennon, actually, his house was on uh, Men Love Avenue. And, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's fairly close to where I live. But, yeah, it is, a, it is an awkward name as well. Growing up in Liverpool, you just have that. I guess, I mean, look, I'm from London, so I shouldn't. It just feels more exotic, of course, because there's a different history. And whenever I've been to Liverpool, that whole Beatles thing, and it's just everywhere, isn't it? What a, what a cool place to be from. I think. I like, yeah, I mean, we don't really mention the whole Beatles thing very often. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a nice uh, little bit of. It's, it's, again, I mean, that's it. So you know, I, I talk a lot about this in the book, really. That you know, in certain, not just with class, but say somebody who is uh, black, right, a black British person, and who growing up was considered by all of the you know schoolmates, whatever, to be the least black person they've ever met. You transport that person to a different environment, and then suddenly they're the black. They are the black person, you know, because they have this whole sort of well of cultural clout and, and kudos to draw on. Uh, and, and likewise, if you're from Liverpool, even if you're considered to be like the poshest scouser ever, non-scousers don't know that, do they? So you know, you can be somewhere, and then that's it. You're you're allowed to draw on this whole sort of well of cultural kudos, just like the biggest scally in a uh, our screen or whatever. Isn't that, it's such a weird thing, identity, and uh, I guess more and more, and you, you talk about the internet, and, and uh, everybody sort of has to cultivate this interesting social background they have, and I, I often think about, you know, you go to university, right, and I, I always think about your first 
dates, right? You go on a date with a girl and you're 18, right? Like, I don't know what we all spoke about because all it could have been is like my mum. Like, what's your mum like? Oh, my mum does this and that, you know? Because or my teachers and stuff like that. Like, what do you talk about when you're 18, right? And that's suddenly everybody's got like posters around their walls, don't they? In the dorms and stuff at university because that's like that's my identity. And it, it is that is that what is that what it is? Is it? What I'm trying to get to is, is it people who don't have that much to say who often have to sort of showcase an identity? I definitely think there's an element to that, yeah. I mean, so, for example, lots of people who aren't on social media, right, or aren't on certain kinds of social media, and lots of young, for lots of young people, that's the case, right? So I don't know why my wife has a Twitter account because she's an aspiring academic, so she feels she has to. But she's not on there, you know. So she's she doesn't feel this constant pressure all the time to project this, that, the other. Um and so I think one of the problems of the internet and social media is that it, it allows for this complete detachment from who you really are, if that makes sense. So at university, for example, okay, people might not know you, so you can sort of lie and exaggerate to a certain extent. But ultimately, you are, you know, it's physically, your projection of who you are is connected to a human being, you know, at the end of it, if that makes sense, right? So people can, if you, there's only a limit to how much you can exaggerate and mislead people and, and reinvent your life and your identity because you are corporally there, right? They can check that, you know, who you really are. On the internet, of course, there's, that limit doesn't exist. You know, you can be whoever the hell you want to be. And sometimes we do see that sort of just sneaking into ordinary life, like with someone like Rachel DeLiesel, where they genuinely think, you know what, I'm actually just going to pretend to be black. That's the woman who identifies as a black person, right? Indeed, yeah, indeed. So, there's a, you know, there have been a few more people who are like her exposed, a woman called Jessica Krug. I think, pretended to be Latino, even though she had absolutely no sort of Latino background. So this is becoming slightly more usual in real life, if you like. But it's still unusual because there is that sort of, uh, there's that jeopardy that people might realise, no, Rachel, you've just been doing fake tan all these years, and, you know, curling your hair. On the internet, it's it's much harder to find out about this. You know, it's much easier to sort of, um, to exaggerate and make up this fake online identity. And that pressure as well, because that's what I mean. I feel like that social media is an extension of that university dorm room of like, I'm the kind of person who likes the Godfather as if that makes you any different to everybody else who bought the same poster outside of the university shop, you know? And then, then Twitter, you get these people who their social media is like, it's almost like a list of 10 different identities. And you, I just want to say like, but what are you, you know, have you, have you learned a skill recently? Do you have a passion? Do you like knitting? Uh, do you like to go for walks? I want to know that stuff. Instead, it's like uh, white, libertarian, uh, Aries. And it's just like, what? what is all that? Absolutely, yeah, that's it. I think so many, you know, because if you imagine, say, uh, you, you know, your average British person is, okay, they might have all kinds of interesting personal things to, that are specific to them as a person, right? But, you know, if you are, say, your average white, middle-class, non, uh, you know, LGBT Britain, then yeah, you got to try and you got to have a bit more than that, you know. So if you go, you can say, all right, but I'm really into this, you know. I'm I'm a, I'm a big ally, or I'm a big trans ally, or something, you know. Or yeah, I'm you know really into BLM or whatever, and that's okay. You know, it's fine to support these things, of course, but keep it about them and not about you. You know, don't make it something about how cool or interesting or you know well read or erudite you are. You know, make it about the cause you're meant to support, uh, and don't make it about your own identity. But that's what we do. We make everything about our own identity, and I think like it's it's. I think it's one thing to sort of pretend maybe, let's say if we're talking about class, to pretend you're posher than you are or pretend you're more academic than you are or more something of other. But to pretend that you're black or pretend that you're working class um, because those are the perceived victims, there's, there's something insidious about that, isn't there? Yeah, the, I mean, that's it. There definitely is, yeah. So something I talk about in the book is this idea of uh, neo-Orientalism. And uh, I'm trying to update Edward Said's idea of Orientalism, whereby, you know, fairly well-meaning, usually well-meaning scholars would uh, research the Orient and the languages of the Orient and culture and so on. And even though they were well-meaning, according to their uh, ideas anyway, they were still being used for nefarious purposes. And the whole idea of it really helped to sort of, uh, uh, to sort of harden ideas of racial difference and the fact that different races existed, etc., uh, that certain people were essentially certain, you know, ways and, and what have you. And yeah, I think there's something similar going on here. You know, if you think that there is something special or exalted in some way about particular groups of people, whether that's because you think they are particularly disadvantaged or in, because you think that they're, they're just particularly cool and interesting kinds of people, or indeed a particularly sort of moral people who normally would do the right thing, 
whatever. I think that's a bit weird, frankly, uh, because, you know, people are just people and obviously some people are terrible and some people are great. Um, yeah, and it's, I think it is really weird to sort of exalt or put on a pedestal a particular group of people. Is this more common, this um, sort of fervent adopting of uh, an identity? Is this more common among younger people? I'm, I'm just remembering uh, Daniel Finkelstein when he was on, he was talking about, you know, everyone talks about the Vietnam War and that, that the young people in America were so anti-war, but actually young people also the most for pro-war as well uh, like they have to you know it's an identity kind of thing so does it happen more among young people you know it's really interesting because i think they've always been obviously really important well not necessarily always but certainly in, since the second world war we've had the growth the growth of you know subculture and the importance of youth subcultures in particular and obviously that existed for many decades before uh, the internet and social media came around but what i think now is i think that it's because of the sort of pervasiveness of, of social media and online culture, etc., that it's becoming, you know, there are fewer areas where this doesn't, to where it doesn't intrude, if that makes sense, you know. So back in the day, if you were a, a punk, then there were only certain uh, areas or certain places where you could exhibit that, if you like, where you could meet with like-minded people, etc. There are only so many people you could let know were a punk. Like, say you were some from some random town in the UK, all right, everyone else would see you walking around with your... Uh, you know, uh, Doc Martens and uh, your uh, pin through your nose and all the rest of it. But actually, well, as everyone, no one else knew, but you know that you you were you were restrained to your particular community. But now with the internet, of course, there is no such geographic restraint. You know, people can broadcast this identity all over the world and constantly get involved in all these disputes that people are happening all the time. So yeah, I think basically the the internet sort of expands the space for which people can get in get into this kind of thing. Um, and also sort of polices it as well. So, yeah, obviously, you know, lots of young people were very pro-war back in the day. Lots of young people today uh, have sort of decidedly anti-woke views. But, um, and by woke, by anti-woke, I mean, I hate that word woke personally, but by anti-woke views, I don't necessarily mean culturally conservative views. Very often these people are definitely cultural liberals, but they just take issue at, you know, some of the new sort of um, shibboleths of, of, of the modern day. Uh, but because of the, the nature of the internet, they can't really go out saying this openly. You know, they can't say it openly, so they just sort of, inter- you know, don't say it openly. Um, yeah, so I think that's maybe one thing that's changing is that the <clears throat> it's becoming harder for young people to maybe not clearly and, 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 and definitely be on one side, if that makes sense. There is something, though, performative and, and maybe inauthentic about this identity and how we project it into the world, although I guess maybe we're not always aware that it's performative, if that makes any sense. We sort of adopt it and it becomes part of us. Why do you think... Okay, the, the other day the other day we went out for my birthday and we went to a vegetarian restaurant because I'm a vegetarian and it's not... I don't see that at all as part of my identity. I don't... I don't you know, if anything, I don't want to tell people because it, it's... The people make assumptions. It's just I don't fancy eating meat. There's no big thing about it, whatever. But... We went with my family and my stepmom, I hope she doesn't mind me saying, I, you know, I love her. She's fantastic. But she kept saying, looking around the restaurant and going like, yeah, exactly the kind of people you'd expect here. Look at them. She, this person is an archetypal person of the type of person you'd expect here. And it was sort of nagging at me. And I was just thinking, why is this winding me up so much? And why is she obviously so uncomfortable that she's got... What is it about identity that's winding us up so much? That's it, isn't it? That's it. Because you would think on the one hand... Two things. So why people like your stepmom, not just people like your stepmom, actually object to this idea of vegetarianism or vegans, right? Not even so much the practice of being a vegetarian or a vegan, but the idea of it and what it stands for. And indeed, likewise, many vegetarians and vegans can't simply adopt the practice of being, you know, be vegetarian and vegan. They have to tell everyone about it, you know, and they have to actually go from simply, it's not just about what they eat in the diet, but indeed it is for many of them, like a lifestyle and that thing to belong to. So that's it. I mean, I wish I, you know, I, clearly there's no, there's no one definitive cause of this, I don't think. One of the big themes of the book, actually, is that there's this increasing divergence between sort of material circumstances. So say things like income, wealth, uh, the colour of your skin, your sexual orientation, you know, things that you're, you're sort of born into or born with, things that are real to you that you can't just easily change. And then this sort of, uh, you know, cultural, political, ideological superstructure as Karl Marx called it, whereby, you know, so the material reality is I don't eat meat. The superstructure is, oh, I've got loads of tattoos and I don't bathe either. <laughs> or whatever. Maybe that's what your stepmom thinks, I'm not sure. So that's, you see what I mean? Like, or you know, the, my, my material reality is I'm, I'm 
from this kind of background and so therefore my culture is I vote a certain way and I like football and I speak a certain way etc so increasingly the, the the sort of political cultural identity bit is taking precedence like that's what's the more important thing for so many people it's not just well you step on my thing it's not just that they don't eat meat it's the whole everything that goes with it and indeed you know for many vegetarians and vegans for their part it's not just that they don't eat meat it's everything else that goes with it and I don't know why this is I mean as I said I think because until fairly recently, we were limited in the number of people that we could convey this to, right? Whereas now we're not. Because of the internet, you can become the world's most famous vegetarian, if, if you're annoying enough, probably. Or indeed, the world's most famous anti-vegetarian people. You know, there's almost certainly a media career to be made, if there isn't already, by someone just become like this viral anti-vegetarian person, I don't know. Um, so, you know, that, that that's one thing that's changed. And also, again, I think... Uh, business you know business have, have clocked basically that there's lots of money to be made not just from say the fact that lots of people don't eat meat like with Greg's and their vegan sausage roll right so Greg's has realized materially that lots of people don't eat meat you might still like a decent sausage roll so actually they can make money from that so I'm not talking about that but actually many companies have realized the identity itself can sell t-shirts yeah, it can get clicks onto websites, you know, it can get followers on social media, etc. There's lots of money to be made and, and fame and fortune to be had from the identity itself, either the vegetarian and vegan identity or indeed like the really anti-vegetarian vegan identity. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. I wonder if with the vegetarian one, it's like, I'm, I mean, I, I suppose I cultivate my own identity and my identity that I cultivate is not the one that I, I would, that the, the, the vegetarian one, you know? So I make a point of telling people it's not because of environmental things. It's not because, because I don't, I'm so scared people will think I'm one of those people who are moralizing. <laughs> and I suppose that's why my yeah. stepmom uh, probably feels under threat a little bit as well, because I think maybe she thinks that they're judging her and she's being defensive. Um, and, I suppose the only thing I, 
where I really get carried away with an identity is football, and I'm a Tottenham fan, right? And that means nothing except that, you know, so which, that's that the first type you were talking about, isn't it? That I was sort of born into that a Tottenham fan, wasn't I? And I feel that quite strong. Does that maybe, is there any, do you, have, you, have you come across any evidence that people who have maybe sports fans or things like that uh, uh, don't need as many other identities? I'm, one, that's, I'm curious about that. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting, actually. That's really interesting because I think that that is the sort of thing whereby it, the identity, I think it depends on the club, maybe, right? The identity bit may become more or less important depending on the club, right? So presumably for some clubs, absolutely, absolutely, uh, you know, you're a Tottenham fan, but it doesn't necessarily mean you participate in Tottenham fan culture, whatever that is. <laughs> I don't know exactly what that is. If you're a Liverpool fan, however, yeah. I think maybe, <laughs> I think absolutely maybe there is more of a pressure to participate in certain things around Liverpool fan culture, which of course nowadays is all being like dead left wing and really like, you know, opposing the Tories and all that, which 30 years ago was the exact opposite, incidentally. You know, Liverpool was one of the most Tory cities in the UK until a few decades ago, absolutely. No and was also one of the most racist cities in the UK until the 1980s. You know, John Barnes was the first time uh, either Liverpool or Everton had actually signed a black player. Liverpool actually had a black player come up through the ranks, but they didn't really like him and got rid of him for racist reasons. Chelsea, Man United, West Ham, I think Millwall, they'd all had black players before Liverpool or Everton. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a brilliant book uh, called Out of His Skin about John Barnes by the London journalist Dave Hill. And he talks about all of this. Like he talks about all this. So yeah, Liverpool used to be... Um, you know, it was not a Labour heartland. It was not a Labour heartland at all. It's, it's become that in the past 30 years. And that's fine. You know, things change, history change. But unfortunately, at the time, there's become this complete like rewriting of history. So that actually, oh, Liverpool's always been this proper anti-racist, like internationalist. That's it, bollocks. You know, what are you talking about? No. Uh, yeah, so so, so I think that definitely there, there is with some, uh, I think even with football, this can happen actually. And different kinds of identity. I mean, I don't know. I think, I mean, I, I don't know if this is being harsh on Chelsea fans. Um, I think, isn't it, I, I think Daniel Finkelstein might be a Chelsea fan, mm-hmm. isn't he? Something mm-hmm. like that, though. That's right. David Badilis as well, actually, isn't he? Which yes, is, they uh, both are. But, yeah, so, you know, but the reason I'm bringing this up is, I, I would say, as a, as a Liverpool fan, with Chelsea fans, there seems to be this sort of culture of being not only a bit of a Tory, actually, but being a bit of a racist. I don't know if it's slanderous to Chelsea fans, I'm not sure. <laughs> but I'd, I'd assume, but I presume Daniel Finkelstein and David Baddiel absolutely do not buy into that identity of, of, of being a Chelsea fan, no, if that makes sense. I was, I was thinking the same thing, actually, about them. Yeah, so, it, yeah. you know, so that's it. Yeah, it is funny, though, how that, that so it's, it's the only place where I see myself as in a tribal place. I guess when I was a kid, uh, I had to go to like uh, schools to learn Hebrew as a Jewish family kind of thing. And I hated it. I hated any kind of tribe mentality or any kind of like we're this group and that's that group. And yet football and in football, I have started as well because me and my dad, we're those people at Tottenham who get talked about a lot when we go to the games who leave or at least used to leave a few minutes before the end. Now, the reason for that is because <clears throat> the traffic outside of the Tottenham's stadium is notoriously horrific and leaving three or four minutes early is the difference between, you know, it's an hour and a half extra traffic. If you get after those few minutes, that's another hour and a half. And at the end of the day, we had like my little sister we had to go and look after. We had things to do that were more important. So we got to watch most of the game and we left a couple of minutes before the end. And you'd leave and you'd get people who don't know you <laughs> and they're going, leaving before the end, are you? You're not a real fan. Like they, and it's almost like, you're, it's laughable. What is that tribal thing they have? Well, I mean, that, that's it. So it's, again, it's going back to what we've been talking about at the start, right? It's, it's everyone's got to have something. You know what I mean? Everyone's got to have something about them, right? And for some people, what, what that thing can be is they never leave before the end, you know? And, and that's it. And then, but then almost like if a lot of if other people are, how do other people know that you're not leaving before the end you've got to say to someone else oh leave before the end you know what I mean so this is it because otherwise people wouldn't know about it you can't just be someone who never leaves before the end you've got to make everyone know about it and tell everyone about it and honestly so much of this identity nonsense that we see in culture wars on both sides on both sides absolutely it's people who don't really have much else other than that you know other than their place in the culture wars be it sort of angry bigots online, you know, making racist comments, or indeed the sort of equivalent, you know, left-wing cranks attacking so-called TERFs or Zionists or whatever. You know, I'm a, I'm a big believer, and I say this in the book, um, that if, you know, if, if it wasn't for sort of financial 
problems, material problems, constraints of money, a lot of the sort of cultural hate, you know, that we're living through now w- wouldn't be there, basically, wouldn't be there. If so many if things like mental health services were better funded, if the welfare state was better funded, if there were more jobs and things like academia and media and all kinds of stuff, people would have something else. You know, they would have something else in their life other than being this culture warrior on the internet. Oh, so it comes from, to an extent, just people with nothing in their lives. And, and you think that, yes, yeah, so the state should somehow sort of sort of help? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it depends what we're talking about. So it's not necessarily people with nothing in their lives, but I definitely think it's people who think they need something other than what they've got. And indeed, who might need something other than what they've got. And it's whether the state should help them or not, it's more the idea that a lot of this stuff, a lot of this anger and hatred, this desire for like this competitiveness and this desire, like I've got to have something. I think it comes from a place of like of the material insecurity and say, I mean, a lot of, so like say decline in sort of steady work for lots of people in the past few decades. And I don't just mean like former miners and steel workers, but I mean in jobs in, in, in uh, sectors like academia and journalism and so on whereby there's been this real decline in steady work. You know, you have all of these people, so many people now with PhDs uh, and without a, um, you know, without any chance of getting a job, really. You know, if you look at the the numbers of PhDs compared to uh, full-time academic jobs. And one route to go down is to try and uh, make money out of being an author and, you know, trying to sell books based on this. But yeah, another thing is, right, uh, if I've got all this great education and, and maybe not much to show for at the end of it, I can at least use this by being a troll on the internet or something. You know, that that can be my thing. You know, that I can just attack all these so-called Tories and, you know, I can rage about Keith Starmer and all the rest of it. And then that can be my thing. You know, I can be a troll on the internet. I was just going to say, I think, honestly, I think, you know, Joe Biden, one of, I mean, Joe Biden, he's this, I mean, things aren't actually going well for him so far, but he's this classic sort of one of the last New Deal Democrats, if you like. It's Obviously, it's not as though he doesn't believe in the importance of cultural issues. He does, but ultimately he's focused on class. And I think his big bet with his quite, uh, you know, ambitious legislative programme, uh, which is sort of stalled now with the failure of the Build Back Better Act he wants to pass. But so much of the stuff that he did pass last year in terms of the coronavirus uh, bailout and in terms of the infrastructure bill, he's betting that he can solve this, you know, culture war tear in America apart by by stuffing people's mouths with gold, basically, as, as Nye Bevan said of the NHS, by, like, just giving loads of money, by, by federal largesse to, to turn on the, the taps of spending and hopefully help things that way. Uh, I hope it works out for him. I'm not sure that it will. But I, I honestly, I'm definitely sure that you could really decrease the number of sort of, uh, certainly in terms of left-wing hate on the internet, right? There'd be a lot less left-wing hate on the internet against like TERFs and Zionists if there were just far more jobs in academia. I've got no doubt about that. That's a really interesting thought. I hadn't thought of it that way. I just thought of it as, I did, I, I see the sort of them not having much to do aspect and I hadn't gone that, that far. I, I, if I, and I've been reeling off a lot of examples of people that I'm bitter about in my life, I think, like the Tottenham fans or whoever else. I guess I'm hoping that listeners as well will, will relate and go like, yes, I know someone just like that in a different thing. And I'm thinking of like as well, um, as you said, the left wing thing, I got... I, I fell out with an old friend of mine, a girl I knew in, in Argentina who... Um, just was like probably. I mean, I don't like to use the word privilege because it's just such a you know, it's it's almost uh, it's such a, it's reductive, isn't it? But but she was it was ridic- ridiculous. She's this a woman in her like mid thirties, never had to do a job for more than like a couple of weeks in her life, uh, just sort of lazed about basically, and then suddenly had these like extremely left wing views and was like shouting at other people and stuff. Uh, and I just thought like, yeah, she had nothing to do. Was that that's what was going on? Maybe. That's, I mean, maybe, 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 because, you know, there's always been, uh, say, in the past 150 years in UK politics, uh, you know, there's a big thing called the, the Primrose League in, like, the middle of the 19th century, or the second half of the 19th century, when, you know, middle-class women uh, would, would really get involved in politics and political activism for the, for the Tory party, actually. And uh, an element, or even, you know, you'd have, like, middle-class visitors who go to, like, you know, the East End and stuff and try and help people and all the rest of it. So... Yet, there's always been an element of maybe people who are sort of financially secure themselves and don't have that much to do, who can really get involved in a particular cause, like religion as well, or like anti-slavery movements or uh, pro-temperance movements or whatever. So there's always been that element there. But again, sometimes I think it's not so much not having something to do, but it's about, you know, feeling that they don't have status, they don't have record status in terms of what matters to them. So simply being rich and, and you know having a few quid in the bank or whatever 
sometimes that's just not enough status anymore for people and and they think oh you know i'm this middle class privileged white woman that's a problem maybe in they think anyway according to our cultural hierarchy so okay i'm not going to do a full delusion and pretend to be black i'm not going to pretend to be bi which you could just do and say oh yeah i'm, I'm bisexual or i'm gender queer even if you've got a you know heterosexual monogamous relationship lots of people do that so do you think I'm going to become this really angry class warrior on the internet because if I can't change my demographics, at least I can you know be really sort of extremely left wing or what have you. And definitely, I know a couple of people like that, and you know I feel sorry for them in some way because they can't quite accept that just being this you know middle class white girl is fine. It's fine, you know. It's more than enough. In fact, being a, just being a regular woman is still pretty shit. I say this in the book as well. It's fine to just be a woman, even if you are a middle class white you know cis heterosexual woman you you still have to deal with loads of shit and you don't have to either make up some other element of your life you don't have to pretend to be something else and nor do you actually have to become this you know extremely outspoken left-wing person to mitigate for the fact that you're this middle-class white cis woman no it's fine to just be a middle-class white you know heterosexual woman that's sound you don't need this other uh, identity either whether it's a demographic identity or political one. Just be happy being you, I think. I like that phrase, charity starts in the home, because there's like there's so many people I've known and I've lived with who have just been horrible at home, not done any of the washing up, and just let me do it, and been mean and impolite and whatever, and then they've sort of made up for it with these sort of social causes that they talk about. I mean, this woman, I should just say, this particular woman said that after the George Floyd stuff, she said, there's a holocaust happening in America right now, and they're, they're committing genocide against uh, people of colour. And I was like, oh, right, okay, well, you can't really, where do you go from there, you know? Well, that's, I mean, you've got to think, does that person really believe that? Or are they saying that for themselves, you know, for the reaction that will generate in other people to whom they say it? And if that's the case, that's pretty, that's pretty crappy, really, isn't it? Because, you know, you're using the suffering of sort of black people at the hands of the police in America to, to say something about yourself and make, make something about yourself, yeah. And I, I mean, that point about charity believes begins at home. You know, it's, it's a massive cliche how many outspoken male feminists treat women like crap, you know. Uh, you know, it's uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, so many people I know also, um, I think this is maybe something more of an American thing as well, but they might be really sort of left-wing or, you know, so-called woke on all these cultural issues. But they still uh, are invested, <laughs> they still say, try to avoid tax, whatever, or send their kids to private school, will be happy to do so, whatever. And, and they don't necessarily think that contradicts with their extreme left-wing cultural views in any way. So again, how about you do something to your own life first? I mean, actually, there used to be, I remember just after the George Floyd thing happened, and I you know, subscribed to the New York Times, and I get the various uh, morning newsletters they send out. And they used to have this banner advertisement for this tax avoidance uh, company, avoiding inheritance tax, you know, pass on your wealth to your generations. And I, you know, I felt like I said, do not realize that one of the biggest racial problems in the US is disparity in wealth, especially wealth. It's even worse than income, right? Because black people on average earn less than white people, but it's far worse in terms of inherited wealth. And so here you have the New York Times with this really hard, like, you know, you know, uh, anti-racist turn after George Floyd. But still, they think it's completely fine to advertise all kinds of, you know, tax avoidance schemes to help, uh, you know, maintain inherited wealth. Uh, yeah. And indeed, you know, something I'd like to bring up is George Michael, right? The late George Michael. When he died, turns out that actually he was one of the most charitable fellas ever. You know, so many people were saying he'd give millions here, millions there, but also he'd just do random things, like he'd tip a waitress like a load of money, whatever. You know, he, he just did so many little acts of kindness that no one knew about until he died and it all came out the woodwork. And I think so many people if they were really interested in furthering the lot of different kinds of people, uh, they would do it like George Michael used to do, which is keep keeping their mouth closed about it and just go about the business and, and, and do it. Rather than, you know, George Michael never went around saying, oh, I'm dead generous, maybe you shouldn't see how much I give to charity. But, you know, a lot of these sort of... Um, uh, the most out outspoken identity warriors. That's exactly what they're doing. You know, they're making it all about them. Well, you got to have faith, you know. And the thing with that—it's <laughs> not even funny, is it? I'm sorry. But <laughs> no, maybe it was. So, but the thing with the George Michael thing—that's interesting. I'm thinking about the Oscars right now, and like, it is a weird thing, isn't it? I'm wondering if George Michael maybe had enough that he didn't feel the need to have another thing to his status. He was George Michael. He was the go outside and in the New York police thing he was the handlebar moustache he had like a hundred identities and by the end it was unfortunately quite sad you know he drove into that photo shop i think um i was i was drove past it the other day and i was thinking about that but um he was obviously not having a good time um but 
Will Smith, of course, that happened the other night um, at the Oscars. And I, I do wonder, is there just like this insane level of entitlement? Are we revering people too much? And are they afraid? I know the Oscars has, has the last couple of years has been watched less and less. Are they afraid that their identity or their status level is dipping a little bit? You know what, that definitely could be the case, absolutely. I can definitely imagine a lot of that is happening with, say, traditional media stars, right, like music and film, etc. Because they'll be worried about the sort of democratisation of this that's 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 happening with Twitter and, and TikTok and Instagram and social media and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, maybe absolutely there there could be. I mean, I've, I've got this theory, like, it's it's people who are who feel that they are maybe on the outside of this of, of groups, you know, who feel they have to most strongly, I mean, it's not a theory that's unique to me, incidentally, but people on the outside of groups, on the borders of groups, feel that they've most strongly got to sort of uh, announce and uh, elucidate their membership of this group and defend the group. So, for example, um, I mean, very often, like, you know, middle-class kids from the North who go down to the posh Southern universities and they've got to become, like, the defenders of the North and stuff like that, because uh, that's their identity now, right, the Northern one. Uh, or oh, indeed, um, you know, there's this uh, African-American uh, academic called uh, Julius Wilson, I think his name is, I've forgotten his name. I mentioned him in the book, so if you want to read the book, find out that way. Uh, and and his, his argument is that so much of uh, the, the focus on sort of racial racism in the USA, uh, because by nature, you know, the poorest black people who are most on the sharp end of, say, police and state racism and poverty and all the rest of it, we usually don't hear from them for obvious reasons. Instead, we hear from, uh, you know, black journalists and black academics and black celebrities, you know, people who've succeeded. And his argument, Wilson's argument, is that actually because these people are successful and, and nearly always rich and influential and because they very often come from privileged backgrounds, more privileged than the average white person, they feel like they especially have to be black, you know. Um, so that's it. Whereas maybe more real poor black people are less worried about being black for capital B. They're just worried about getting by, you know, not being shot and being able to pay the bills and stuff like that. So I think maybe for a lot of film stars anyway, because of the nature of where they are and, and you know, obviously they're rich and successful, they feel the need to say, you know, I'm, I'm still that kid from West Philadelphia, born and raised. You know? <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> and all that. So he still, feel, you know, that's it. He says, I'll still slap someone. You know, someone disses my woman, I'll still slap his face. Uh, oh, so there could be that there could be there could be that element as well that's going on. Yeah, there's no excusing what he did, but I did. It, he did say something. You never know how much is false because he's an actor. But he was saying about how he he regrets every day that he didn't stand up when his mother got it from his father, and that might have been playing in his head. And he sort of laughed at the joke at first. And I'm I'm doing the benefit of the doubt here thing, and that must have gone through his mind at that moment. Like I didn't stand up for her. Then I've got to stand up for my. And it wasn't a nice joke. And it wasn't funny. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it. It's, it's really, it's one that, I mean, I think one of the many reasons this has got so much attention really is because everyone comes out of it looking terrible. You know what I mean? So definitely, I mean, Chris Rock comes out of it looking pretty bad, I think, because firstly, yeah, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to say something really mean, you're going to make it really funny, if that makes sense, or something like that. Yes. Or, you know what I mean? Because, you know, if, if he, he knows that she, if, if she just shaved the head, then fair enough. But if she's got alopecia, as surely he must know about or be aware of, then don't make that joke. But if you do that, make that joke, you've got to expect some kind of comeback. And I think this is why Chris Rock has been a bit snide, in that he was just assuming, well, pff, what are they going to do? He's not going to get up stage and punch me, is he? So, you know, I can say this and get away with it. Uh, and then, yeah, so everyone everyone comes out of this looking looking really bad, I think. So even if she had just shaved her head, just saying, oh, you're going to be in the next G.I. Joe movie, that's not funny enough to be offensive. Be offensive by all <laughs> means, but like, I think Gervais is a master at, like, he, he's actually funny. Like, that wasn't a good enough joke to warrant... I, and, and I don't want, obviously, I don't, I'm not entirely... I'm being facetious. I don't want people listening to think that I think, firstly, that, that violence is ever warranted. You should never be hitting a, comed a comedian for a joke, and you, you know. But most people, if you went up to them on the street and you said something about their wife or their mother or their husband or their son... You know, and you said, and it was because of a some sort of an, an illness or a condition, and it was in front of millions of people. Again, no excuse for getting up, but like it just wasn't. Who who was the aim, the butt of that joke? I don't. It was an odd one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's um, it's one. I mean, that's it. I'm, I'm normally a big fan of Chris Rock, and I think I talk about him a fair bit in the book. Him and Dave Chappelle, actually, I think they both they both got a lot to say about about you know quote unquote blackness, right, and, and the difference between blackness as an identity and blackness as you know the color of your skin. Uh, and the sort of interactions between that, because obviously they're both now very rich and successful celebrities. Um, and yeah, and they're just talking about, and they also, I think, you know, have, 
I don't know, they're just talking about the difficulty of being, you know, black and being expected to be black and how very often that's not them and how that's maybe caused difficulty them in life. So I think they've got a lot to say about that. So yeah, normally I'm a big fan of Chris Rock, but uh, yeah, a really styled thing to do because again, you've got to make sure that you're going to be funny in the first place. And then to sort of use the fact that, you know, you're on stage there so you can just sort of say what you like and there's going to be no comeback. Yeah, it's it's a, it's, a, it's an awkward thing to do in the first place. And, uh, and obviously Will Self reacted terribly. So yeah, everyone looks like a fool really. Everyone comes out of that bad, and and you you're, you know look you don't you don't judge someone's entire career based well at least in Chris Rock's case I mean it's a bad joke okay well I'll, let's see what his next one is but the Will Smith thing I don't know like people are saying they might have like might have uh, scripted that but you think well what did Will Smith who just won an Oscar that night have to gain from that especially because his he his he trades off of that whole reputation as like the good guy who doesn't swear in his songs uh, well exactly exactly yeah exactly so I can't see it going well for for Will Smith in the future because because that's it especially just the way these things you know the way there's like a if people, you know, there's a phrase here where people basically, they, they, they don't deal with something well at first and then they overreact afterwards or something, you know. Um, uh, yeah, like when, uh, who was it, like it was Decca Records or whatever didn't sign the Beatles and then signed all the other crap for the 60s. Like they were devastated and out the Beatles. So I think because there was no, come up, nothing happened the night, right? Everyone just carried on as normal. So well, just smacking someone was completely fine. He got the best actor Oscar. He went up, he made a speech. So therefore, that's why I think it's going to be bad for Will Smith in the future. I keep saying Will Self. <laughs> I'd love to see Will Self trade places with him and come up there. But anyway. Well, you'd think he would have come back verbally, not physically. <laughs> yeah, you'd think he'd have something funny to say, especially if it was Will Self in the 90s. You'd have something funny to say, maybe not today. But anyway, uh, so, yeah, so you know, I think this is why it's going to be bad for Will Smith because it wasn't dealt with at the time and nothing happened at the time and everyone carried on as normal. So then often when something like that happens, you know, there's going to be a reaction afterwards. And like, okay, well, we didn't, you know, you know, we can't just let him continue and have a good career now because of what he did. And there was no reaction at the time. Oh, imagine sort of, it's a weird thing to do. It felt like, you feel like he might have done it before because I've never hit someone anyway. But then he did it with like the inside of his palm, wasn't it? It wasn't, it, well, it wasn't a slap. It was a hit with the inside of his palm. I'm not, I don't know. It was just odd, wasn't it? That's it. The whole thing, the whole thing was strange. Like every everything... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's 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 weird, and you got to wonder, um, yeah, what's going on? I bet it hurt as well, because because people said, oh, he didn't go down, but that doesn't matter. I bet that's bruised today. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, you get slapped across the face like that. It's uh, yeah, just a big shock, and and you know, yeah, um, very strange thing to see. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to be probably bad for Will Will Smith, not Will Self, going forwards. That's a really good point. And then we're sort of in this really difficult position where, you know, people are saying, oh, he shouldn't have got his Oscar. Because it does, it is a bit sort of incongruous, isn't it? That he sort of did that and then he gets his Oscar. But then people have said online when people have said, oh, you should take away the Oscar. And they're going, well, have you taken away all of Harvey Weinstein's Oscars? I'm not sure they even have. So it starts a whole thing, doesn't it? Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's, that's the awkward thing because once you've they've decided he's the winner, you know what I mean? And obviously his name's in the envelope, etc. I'm not sure what they could do then. I'm not sure what they could do then. I mean, I think it's it's awkward then that you... <clears throat> I think it's fine to, to still give him the Oscar, etc. Because, you know, you're not judging him on his <laughs> slapping technique. Whatever. You're judging him <laughs> on his acting technique, not how he reacts to jokes. Uh, and I suppose that, that would be... I mean, as far as I'm aware, the Oscars Weinstein's won, you know, as a producer, etc. His company's won, I think. They haven't revoked them. Um, same with Woody Allen as well, I think, obviously. And, and you know, allegations against him and stuff. Uh, different different caliber to Weinstein, but you know, I think in many of these cases they they say, look, we're rewarding you know the artistic merit, not the individual themselves. So definitely, I think give him the Oscar, but maybe even don't let him come on stage to collect it. Maybe ask him to leave, have him just walked on stage and smacked one of the presenters. <laughs> maybe say, could you could you leave now? Actually, you made a bit of an ass of yourself because then if I think that is then saying to people, do as you please. You know, if you're a big name star, do as you want, and, and there's going to be no comeuppance for it. So yeah, maybe. Don't take the Oscar away, but maybe just have someone else collect it on his behalf or something. I do. I am starting to have, as I get older, a little bit, and I don't know, I hope it doesn't come from bitterness, but a little bit, I'm fed up with reverence for celebrities. I'm fed up. I'm tired of it. And uh, I don't, I, it wasn't just him. It was also Sean Penn just before the Oscars was banging on about getting Zelensky there, the Ukrainian president. And he's just like, if he's not there, then, and it's just like, who do you think you are, mate? You, you literally, <laughs> you, you're very good at what you do. Of course you are. But you literally turn up and pretend to be someone for the day and hang around. This guy's the president. I know he used to be an actor as well, but he's the president of a country. What's he doing? At, why would he bother? But he, needs, he doesn't need any more PR. Everybody's heard of Zelensky now. 
What's your Oscars aren't that important, mate. Exactly. Well, that's it. If anything, it's almost like it's PR for the Oscars, isn't it? But he'd be there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I mean, this is this is something I talk about in the final section of the book on youth, right? And, and talking about youth and, and how, like, this, uh, youth, like itself, is not just an age. It's actually this identity of, you know, young people, like millennials, Gen Zers. The right say that they're all these, you know, um, spendthrift people, you know, with the avocado and stuff and the snowflakes. And obviously the left, the left has a sort of, a uh, mirror image where it says, oh no, but they're all young and passionate environmentalists and all the rest of it. Um, and I think one thing is, unfortunately, I think true, is that there is for a lot of young people this uh, real focus actually on being famous and being a celebrity for its own sake, like in and of its own sake, quite possibly because they see the uh, the kudos that these people have, you know, and they think, oh, you know, if I was someone like that, then people would listen to me and then I would have authority and self-respect and stuff. Yeah, and that's a real shame, and that's a real shame. And I don't want to, obviously, um, sort of jump on a bandwagon of, oh, all young people are, you know, obsessed with celebrity. No, that's one of the things I'm talking, I'm going against in the book. You know, we shouldn't have this idea that all young people, you know, have this identity to subscribe to. But certainly I think, uh, you know, lots of young people really want to be famous, you know, just like, for anything, for whatever. Like, it doesn't mean how it happens or whatever. Uh, Just for whatever reason. And maybe that's because they see that apparently these celebrities do have this cultural cachet and they think they can have some of that too, if only they were famous for whatever, for whatever reason. It, it is that thing. And then maybe that's why I'm getting, as I'm older, I, 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 don't, I don't want these people to tell me anything anymore. I don't want to know what they think, unless I'm a particularly big fan. I want that to just be, and that's maybe, you know, we're getting more, as you talked about the de- democratization of the internet, you get more of these sort of uh, random people who you can follow. And I follow a few YouTubers who I might like, and I'll listen to what they say. And it's not like in other news sources. I like that, that kind of celebrity, those people, nobody, you know, I, I, I go on this guy, Sean Atwood's show once where he's got 700,000 subscribers, right? But most, my family don't know who he is. Most people don't, he can walk down the street, nobody knows who he is. And he's not in our newspaper sort of invading our spaces. I feel like the celebrity is almost like a relic. Do you know what I mean? It's like an old, something in a couple hundred years, they'd be, you know, they used to just like, somebody would like pick people and put them on TV and stuff <laughs> rather than them doing it themselves, you know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's, that's it, that's it, yeah. I mean, and that's it, and I think, you know, if people like Sean Atwood or, you know, many people who uh, come to prominence through podcasting or, you know, on YouTube or whatever, or blogging or, you know, again, stuff like now with like the war in Ukraine, for example, and people who are knowledgeable about war and, you know, but suddenly they're coming to prominence. You think, okay, but that's for a specific good reason, right? So it's not about this broader idea of they are a celebrity and therefore they deserve respect or to, you know, be uh, some kind of, they deserve an audience. No, they're, they're gaining an audience in a particular way through, through their own hard work, yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely something that, um, yeah, the idea of gatekeepers, you know, gatekeepers who would decide who gets to become famous, obviously that's breaking down now. And yeah, maybe that is something that we'll look back and think it was a bit bizarre, you know, a few decades from now, quite possibly. I think so. I hope so. I hated that. I hate, After getting my documentary on the BBC, I hated then having to like, I was then like paraded in front of, you know, other middle class uh probably left wing woke i'm just you know and i'm i'm being maybe unfair assistants at the bbc and i had to go to these like meetings and sit with these people who looked at me with like utter just contempt they hated me because i stood for, i wasn't cool at, in that point in time my particular identity i don't think was cool to them and i thought like what because you applied for this job because you your auntie works at the BBC and now you get to like decide all this you're the gatekeeper now it just seemed so unfair that's why I started the podcast yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah I mean I have um I have similar bones to pick about certain journalists whatever and I'm just thinking you know how the, you did an internship once and right now now you have this exalted position if also it's like personal bugbears I have with certain journalists so I don't want to go too far. I want as much bitterness as possible on the podcast. It can't just be me. It has to be equal. equal. We well, can no, ident- I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> Identify as bitter people. Um, <laughs> as, speaking of which, should should socialist graduates um, or, or people who are progressive minded stop complaining uh, that that you know you, you mentioned a, a blogger, for example, in your book uh, who was saying that you know I, I've graduated, I've got all these degrees and stuff, and I can't. There are no jobs that will take me. What what's really going on? Yeah, yeah, it's really tough, isn't it? It's really tough because one of the things I talk about is, you know, yes, just because class is changing and, and wealth is changing, not an opportunity and all the rest of it, fair enough, absolutely. However, that doesn't mean that, you know, being a young, uh, sort of stressed out, uh, indebted, 
private rent and millennial you can't get sort of steady work it doesn't mean that that's the end of the world right so there was a book that came out a couple of years ago in america and, and the uk can't even by a woman uh, alan uh, and helen Pedersen. that's a decent book but she talks about millennials as though the experience of someone with a degree at least one degree uh, trying to get work in a very competitive industry living in an extremely expensive city she acts as though that is universal to all young people even though she admits that only 39 percent of american millennials have a college degree yeah in the uk it's even lower right even nowadays in 2022 only 40 percent of 18 year olds go on to full-time university study each year so you know the experience of having loads of student debt and um sort of being overqualified for what you're doing and not being able to get sort of steady work and having to constantly graft and pitch and apply uh, it's crap you know it's absolutely crap uh, not being able to own a home and paying loads of money in rent but this is not there are so many young people for whom that is not the case and uh yeah so i think for lots of people uh you know it's again it's, it's the distinction between just not just the material circumstances that they're in but how this clashes with the political, cultural, ideological conception of themselves and where they thought they'd be. So if, for example, and I think generally the modern world and social media, etc., it makes people angry, it makes them jealous, etc. Not always, not always. It depends like where you thought you'd be and where you want to be. So, for example, lots of people, say if you have a steady job as a mental health nurse in Wigan, for example, I'm just thinking of someone in particular. And then actually social media for you, rather than this thing that makes you incredibly jealous and envious about better everyone else is doing, it can allow you to talk of all of these kinds of journalists and academics. And it can allow you to have this sort of second life online where you're actually this sort of post-liberal intellectual rather than just the, uh, you know, mental health protection. But the, the key thing is you're, you're happy with your original life. You've got your wife and your kids and your family and your steady job and your house. So the internet and social media allows you to do other stuff. But for so many people, it's the opposite. It's like, oh, I've got my PhD, I can't get a job. You know, I'm paying ridiculous amounts of rent living in London or Brighton or wherever the hell it is. I thought I'd be doing this, that, the other. And I can see all these people on social media, you know, many of whom I think might feel don't deserve to have this provenance or whatever, you know. And look at them, they're doing so well. So, yeah, I think I think one of the one of the problems is for, for a whole, for a certain type of, of young person is that they've been sold a what's the phrase sold a fob not sold a fob or whatever the hell the phrase is I don't know what it sold is sold a yeah it's like, it's like sold a something isn't it maybe one of the listeners can tell us so it's when you've been you know sold a dream that's not going to happen basically and that's a problem with you know the economic system false a false dawn no no continue false promises I think yeah something like that false promises definitely but there's also like like sold a sold a Sop or so, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, so there's problems with the broader economy, and there are problems with, say, uh, particularly with certain sectors like uh, journalism, media, academia, etc., politics as well, you know, for uh, insecure work and abusive practices, absolutely. But then I think, um, yeah, this is not true for everyone, right? This is particular for some kinds of people. Yeah. You point out in the book that it's it's often, it's not the case that they can't get any jobs, it's that they can't get the exact kind of job, the very particular job that they studied for and wanted. Yeah, exactly. And obviously that's really crap, you know, that that's that's really terrible. But I don't think that that by its, you know, that's, I, I think that that's like the, the situation that certain kinds of people are in. And I don't think we can or should extrapolate from that and say, oh, this is a broad, uh, sorry, this is a broader generational thing. Where, whereas actually so many people who, who definitely didn't go to university are actually pretty happy with their job. You know, they're doing pretty well for themselves, better than they expected that they would do. So that's the thing. You know, we shouldn't uh, take, you know, a particular kind of, 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 of people and, and their experience and say it's like a broader identity for young, uh, you know, graduates. You also write about, on a similar note, um, another another common complaint among, well, people like me, I suppose, is about owning a house. And uh, when am I going to ever be able to pay to, you know, it's ridiculous owning a house. Uh, and you point out that despite that seeming to be a progressive leftist complaint at the moment, it came in, at least in the UK, through Thatcher rights politics. Yeah, that's it. So, you know, I think... Uh, in the UK, like 100 years ago in the UK, about 90% of people were private renters, right? So there, were hard, there was hardly any council housing in 1914, uh, but also hardly anyone owned their own home, right? Including middle-class people, most of whom would rent. Uh, and yeah, it's only fair. So obviously after the Second World War, you have a, even before the Second World War, you have a huge council house building program, massively increases uh, under Labour and Tory governments after the war. 
And then, of course, under Thatcher, it goes into reverse. And the idea was now everyone should own their own home uh, to ideally, you know, make them more conservative, Thatcher was thinking. But, of course, in many countries, you know, like Germany and Spain and, and France and huge parts of the United States, that's not the case. And it's completely acceptable to rent all of your life, you know. Um, I was watching an episode of Frasier a few years ago. I love Frasier. I love Frasier. And, uh, you know, Marty, they go to visit their old uh, the child at home or something. And they meet their old landlord and Martin Crane complains, you know, I paid you rent on time every month for all my life and you never gave me my security deposit back. And I was just thinking, you know, here's somebody who, you know, lived until old age, right, when he moved out the house and his wife was a psychologist and, and he was a police detective and they paid rent, you know, the whole life and that was fine. So, okay, in a country like the UK where renters' rights are so crap, that's a bigger problem. You know, if we had renters' rights on a par with, say, you know, Germany or certain places in the United States, you know, in terms of security of tenure, in terms of being able to have pets, stuff like that, in terms of not being able to have bloody inspections by the landlords at a rental company when you come around and snoop on you uh, once a year or however often it is. You know, if you had better renters' rights, then you're absolutely, you know, there's no reason why, um, you know, there's no reason why being, rent- being a renter would be that bad. One problem is, I suppose, you can't then accumulate wealth to pass on, but maybe you can do it in other ways. But that's a whole separate issue about intergenerational wealth that we don't really have time to discuss. But yeah, what I'm talking about in the book is this then becomes a thing where it's not just about I am in a material position where I'm paying lots of money for rent and I can't afford to buy a house. It becomes, actually, there is this identity of, you know, the young people, right, who are all sort of, you know, uh, renting and they all can't get jobs commensurate with the degrees, etc. And therefore, they have this sort of political cultural identity. And I just don't think that really exists. I think that is a sort of more left-wing version of the right-wing idea of snowflakes and the avocados and all the rest of it. Uh, yeah. So what I'm saying is, properties and you know the property market is important, but the I don't think it's a thing that can generate political identities the way some people think it can. Before my next question, just tell us a little bit about your book, what it's called, where they can find it, and all that stuff. Yeah, so it's called the uh, the identity myth, and uh, yeah, it's published by Constable in the UK. I have a copyright here. Oh, lovely. Uh, <laughs> handy location. So yeah, it's published by Constable in the UK, and uh, it's been out since last month. And yeah, it, it tackles four different kinds of identity. So one is class, the other is race, ethnicity, I should say, really. Uh, one is sort of gender and sexuality, and then one is age and generation. And when I talk about each of those four, four categories or themes, what I'm saying is there's a growing discrepancy between the material reality or the material base, right, that was meant to generate those identities. So for example, time was, if you uh, worked in a mine, and you didn't own your own home, you know, uh, then you were working class and you voted Labour and you liked football and greyhound racing, for example. Um, or say, uh, yeah, but now increasingly like there's the discrepancy between the identity and the material circumstances that provided it and actually people are focusing more on the identity instead. So an example I use in the book is there was a famous investigation at the uh, General Motors plant in Detroit. Uh, in the 60s, this is where the, the term, like the concept of intersectionality comes from. Because in this uh, plant in Detroit, um, only white people were allowed to work in the office. And um, only, uh, sorry, me- yeah, only men were allowed to work in, in on the factory floor making cars. So this particularly discriminated against black women because black women couldn't get a job anywhere. They couldn't get a job on the factory floor and they couldn't get a job in the office either. So this is the idea, but that's important, right? This is literally their material, the reality of their life being a black woman means they can't get a job. But now, you know, it's it's become more of a focus on identity, like what do they believe in, what do they participate in? These people in the General Motors plant couldn't just say, ah, I might look black, but I identify with white concepts like accurate timekeeping and the nuclear family. So fix me a desk, honky, you know, they, they couldn't say that, you know, they couldn't say, I identify with white concepts, no. So this is it now. I think sometimes the focus is more on this sort of ephemeral identity issue. Uh, Things that people like X group are supposed to believe in or participate in or like, rather than the actual material reality of these people's lives. That thing about timekeeping is bonkers, isn't it? For anyone who's not not aware of that, there's this growing uh, clamour among certain progressives that that, that black people are not expected to keep time. Is that right? And that that... (laughs) It's just mad, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. So, and, and so often this is just so ignorant of, of you know, sometimes people who put across these ideas that, you know, the, the nuclear family or accurate timekeeping or even literacy, you know, the importance of reading and writing is a white concept. 
and they're trying to be, you know, to show that they are, they're trying to actually show the breadth of their erudition and stuff, but of course it does the exact opposite, it shows you just how narrow their knowledge is of, of world history actually, if you think that certainly these things are. Neo-Orientalism. Indeed, Neo-Orientalism, actually. Edward Said. Uh, well, exactly. I say, and now David Swift with Neil Orientalism. Yeah, exactly. And David Swift, exactly. Or, 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 you know, white man's burden, isn't it? The Kipling. Is it Kipling? Yeah, so Kipling with the idea of white man's burden. Absolutely. So, you know, it shows that how, how narrow their, their, their understanding of world history is, actually, because, you know, so much of the modern world has you know, decidedly non-white, non-European origins, you know. Uh, China, India, all different kinds of places, the Middle East, etc. You know, so much of what we consider to be modern capitalism and, and all the rest of it is is not from Europe. It's not from white people. You know, it comes from all over the world. So yeah, again, this is an idea of how. And, and by the way, in this book, I talk about the left. I talk about the right. I talk about you know corporations and uh, charities. You know, individuals, groups. So it's not really about left or right, but it's about this. This sort of discrepancy or this this uh, like de- decreasing ties between material realities and the identity that these realities supposedly generate, but instead actually these identities becoming sort of unmoored and loose from the reality, and that means that it's easier for them to be adopted by and abused and misused by all different kinds of people. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.